morning's reading, 1 Samuel, chapter 17, on page 288, beginning at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesus, Damim, between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Ella <clears throat> and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the monks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite, named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came, from, came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. And Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, 
as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the, ma the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom do you leave the, those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic he put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, 
because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shielded bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not my sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell face, he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath after he killed him. He cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharain road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose man is that young Whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. 
As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well done to Sue, I think. Round of applause, yeah. Anybody who wants to volunteer to do readings? <laughs> That's put that one to bed, hasn't it? Just get some genealogies in, in the, for next time. Uh, but uh, thank you, Sue, beautifully read. Let's pray for a second. Sovereign God, we bless you. We proclaim your goodness. We declare that you are sovereign. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This church is yours and everything in it. Each one of us are yours. Would you reign, would you rule in each of our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know, I'm just going to crack on this morning, so there's no introductions, we're just going to go for it. Um, I don't know where you would think about or where you would place human beings in creation. Many people would be quite ambivalent about human beings and what we do to creation and what part we have in creation. Many of you may think, actually, we're great, look at all the advances and things we've done. C.S. Lewis, one of the um, most well-known writers and Christian writers in his sermon and his essay called The Weight of Glory said this, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. The truth is, as you sit here this morning, is there is no one who's ever been like you in all of human history. There is no person in the whole of human history who has been like you. But that isn't a testament to you, in case you get full of yourself. It's a testament to the God who created you. You are unlike anybody this morning who has ever lived. Uniqueness is God's gift to you but also uniqueness is your gift to God. It's God who designed us, God who created us, God who purposed each one of us and destined us and longs for each one of us. And God longs for each one of us to make the unique contribution that he's made us for in his world. In worshipping God, for example, like no one else can. Only you can worship God 
like God created you to be. All of us are called to play a place, to play our place and play our part in God's grand narrative in this world. But to do that, to get in touch with that, to know that requires us to know where our true identity sits and what our true identity is. But I'd like to make it pretty clear right at the beginning of this series and also the beginning of this term what I'm saying to you and what scripture attests to and the Bible says to you and Christianity says is Christianity is not a self-help manual. Christianity is not self-help dressed up in funny clothes. It's not idolatry. The good news of Jesus is that we aren't good enough or gifted enough or able enough, however gifted, able, talented, great history you have, to get to where God wants you to go in your life or God, what God wants to do with your life. We were created for partnership with God in relationship to God and require his help to be all that God has created us to be and to do what he's called us to do. But if we put all of us with all of God, then sort of amazing things are possible. If we surrender all of ourselves and we embrace all of God, then amazing things are possible. So I know this morning as we begin this series, we're treading a bit of a fine line as we do this series. Because what I'm saying is by looking at the theme of identity, so I'm asking to say to look at ourselves, look at us. But I'm also saying very, very clearly that the story is not about us. It's about God and about living for his glory. And it's about holding that together. One of the things, if you've spent any time with any psychologists or with any counsellors or anybody in that field, is that many of them say that a, a large percentage of us spend our lives living as strangers to ourselves. We spend our lives finding out information about other people, about other things. We spend our life on Facebook, following other people's lives, gathering loads of information about what other people are doing. We spend lives critiquing all parts of other people's lives, whether it's at work, dissecting things, and dissecting other people's behaviours. We're an expert on the rest of our family's problems. But what about ourselves? Are we in the dark about ourselves? And why is that? Because our identities get lost, get missed, get stuck between a, a range of things, between the mistakes we've made maybe, the insecurities we've acquired as we've grown up, between the lies that we've believed, both the lies we've said over our own lives, but lies other people have spoken over our lives, and the harm that we've done to others and the harm that other people have done to us. One of the consequences of all that stuff is that we fail, we become people who are uncomfortable in our own skins. We spend so much emotional, physical, spiritual energy trying to be what we're not, what we were never created to be, or we were never created to do. And we become experts at wearing masks. Why? Because we think it's easier. It's the easy life. It's safer to wear a mask but we become lost. 
lost to who God created us to be, and lost to who God called us or called us to do. So I'm not sure where you are this morning with that introduction. Are you at the front end of that? Trying to figure what it's all about, trying to figure who God created you to be and what he called, called you to do, discovering more of what that is? Or maybe you're at the back end of that, trying to remember the life you thought you were going to have, the way that you thought God created you to be, and you've become weary with it. Or maybe you're somewhere in between that, those two extremes, recognising that you're here now, but also longing to see more of what God created you to be. But no matter where you sit in that, my prayer is that you, over this series, over this time, as you experience more of the joy and the freedom of discovering who God created us to be and to do, and what he called us to do. And if you're breathing this morning, some of you may be close to sleeping, but some of you, hopefully, most of you are breathing this morning, God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't given up on you. Do you realise this morning, God hasn't given up on you? Have you registered that? It's never too late to grasp who God has called you to be. At times, uh, you may feel, think, oh, I'm, you know, I don't want this, anything that's slightly introspective, it's painful, and it may feel a bit like an archaeological digs. But sometimes it takes longer to uncover the hidden treasures that lie beneath, and to get through the layers of stuff that reveal the beauty within. Alternatively, the alternative to that is to settle for a superficial life. Beautiful on the outside, manicured on the outside, but that aching emptiness within. Constantly looking to try and betray the life that you'd like people to think you have like portraying the right life on Facebook or wherever else it is that you spend your life saying you're having the right experiences, the right relationships, the right things you're doing, the right job, the right relatives, the right connections with the right people. But one of the consequences of living like that, one of the byproducts of living like that is we become very nervous, anxious and unsettled people. We have no assurance, there's no deep joy, there's no deep peace, and there's no rest. In a city like Bath, what do we think about that? In a city like Bath, image is very important. In a city I've just come from, in Winchester, image is very, very important. I know I spoke to a, a secondary school friend of mine who one of their descriptions of secondary school is said that it's preeminently a bit of a nervous place where children are desperately trying to develop a persona to live by, an image to project to everybody else as they develop their own identities. But if we do that without God, without reference to God, it becomes a very anxious thing. But also superficiality is also a particular curse of our culture. You don't need me to dissect that this morning. However, 
I want to say first on Christians are people who can get beneath that. We can dig deeper than the fallenness of our own natures and of our own sin and find the truth that lies beneath that. The truth that lies beneath the sin and beneath the fallenness, which gets back to the creator God, that we were made in the image of God. Our creator uniquely created us for good things in this world. And if we begin to see our lives through the eyes of our creator, it changes everything. Psychological research shows that actually in a person's life, and one or two people may be able to validate this, is that how we see ourselves is actually determined by very few events or significant experiences. 99% of the things you do during the day, 99% of your life will literally disappear through you. You'll never remember it, it'll go somewhere into your subconscious, and you'll never recognize it of any significant amount. But the birth of a child, or one of those significant unexpected events that suddenly come across your path can shape your life forever. And we're going to look at some of the defining moments of David's life. That's why I've chosen David's life as part of a way of looking at this. And we look through the book of Samuel. I got Sue to read one of the most amazing passages in the Bible, the conflict between David and Goliath. But we'll discover in David's life some of the defining moments of him. But also David, for David, his life is captured in these things. Brian, if you move it, it's on. David wrote many of the Psalms, and this is what David wrote about his own life in the Psalms. Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. David had a sense that his life was in God's hand, that God had gone ahead of him, knew everything about him, that he was walking in that. He wasn't living apart from God. And what did they say about David at the end of his life? It's captured in Acts 13, 36. The epitaph of his life was this. When David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. Right at the beginning of David's life, right at the end of David's life. David fulfilled God's purposes in his life. Despite humble beginnings, despite incredible mistakes that David made, David fulfilled God's purpose and destiny God had for him. And on the most, one of the most memorable days of David's life, David bent down by a brook that didn't just bisect a battlefield between two warring nations, but also became the point in which he had to make a choice about his own life. His life would never be the same after this particular day, and he knew it. As he faced the giant Goliath on the other side opposite him, as the giant's footsteps grew louder and the bellows of the noise opposite him became louder, this became a defining moment in David's life. But you need to bear in mind where David came from, and the reading captured some of that. What did people know about David? Well, even his father just saw him as a shepherd boy. He was nothing more than a shepherd boy. It's ridiculous to think that he was going to be placed in front of this warrior Goliath. 
That's what he was, a humble shepherd boy of, and a youngster in a family, a big family. Yet David saw who God had called him to be and what he destined for him to become. And he stepped forward to become the giant killer. And that is quite a contrast. That is quite a contrast. Everybody else saw David as a shepherd boy. God and David saw himself as a giant killer. That's quite interesting. I wonder how many people felt comfortable singing the children's song this morning. A giant of faith. It's quite difficult to say that, possibly for some of us, and to feel that and know that. But is your perspective God's perspective this morning? David saw it while others didn't. I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again. Is it to the average eye, this big, massive slab of marble was just a piece of marble. An aborted sculpture had been started 50 years ago by Agostino di Duccio, but a young artist named Michelangelo saw something in that massive stone that other people didn't. Chiseling this 18 feet uh, rock, block of marble, would take four years of his life, of Michelangelo's life. But that seemingly worthless block of marble would turn out to become the most beautiful, many people would argue, the most beautiful sculpture ever made. As um, Michelangelo resurrected, essentially, what was a dead, neglected stone and brought David into existence. And as he chiseled this stone, as he took this unformed block of stuff, Michelangelo envisaged what he called the angel, um, the angel within. He called the image of the heart inside. He believed that the masterpiece within the stone was already there. He didn't see what was. He saw what was to come. He saw what could be. He saw a masterpiece of unparalleled beauty in what stood to most people just seemed like a block of stone. And that is precisely how the eternal artist sees us this morning. I've used the New Living Translation from Ephesians 2.10. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Every work of art originates in the mind of the artist. And so it is with the imagination of God. As we took shape in our mother's wombs, you are his masterpiece this morning from the Greek poema. And it's where we get the English word poem from. That's the word Paul uses to describe us. You are God's painting this morning. You are God's poem this morning. You are God's novel this morning. You are God's sculpture this morning. I wonder how you think about that, how you feel about that. Many of us look at beautiful art, beautiful things, 
and just think they're the most amazing things. But even Van Gogh said this, Christ is more of an artist than the artists, said Van Gogh. He works in the living spirit and the living flesh. He makes men instead of statues. God is crafting his purpose and your character and my character through the circumstances of each of our lives. And he has planned good things for our lives. When it says planned in Ephesians 2.10 that God has planned things to do, the thing that Paul has in mind when he writes it is an Eastern custom where the servants go ahead of the king and they clear the way for the king to go and get to his destination. So the king successfully gets from his destination for the servants have gone ahead and cleared the way for them to go. Paul turns that round the opposite way and says, no, for you as a Christian, it's the king who's gone ahead of you. It's the king who's gone ahead of you and cleared the way and prepared the way for you to walk in. That's what he does for you. That's what he's done for us in Jesus. So if you see the statue, I don't know whether any of you, had, I know I asked you a few a while ago whether any of you had been to Florence where the statue of David sits, but if you go in there you'll also notice alongside this are some unformed or some partly formed bits of statue, like some bits of arms, bits of legs, bits of other bits of the body, and they're called the unfinished bits of statues, and they were there to adorn the, the tomb of um, Pope Pius, Pope Julius, sorry, the second. And it's almost as if those uh, different bits of stone, uh, those sculptures want to break free from the fact they're just not complete, they're just not sorted. And just what they were not intended to be. Michelangelo called those bits captives. He called them captives. I wonder this morning whether you have ever felt captive. You can't break free from the habitual patterns of sin or temptation that you're trying to break free from in your own life. Or something God put in your, your heart to complete or to see happen, but you just can't see come into life. You know where you want to be, but you can't get there. You know what you want to do, but you can't manage to get it done. You know the life you'd like to live in, in obedience to God, but you just can't do it. I have no idea this morning how stuck you are, how stuck you feel, and I have no idea how long that's been going on in your life. But I do know that the God of Scripture longs to finish the work that he started within you. That God, by his Spirit, through Jesus, wants to finish the work he started in your life. He has not given up on us. In Jesus' first sermon that's recorded in Luke 4:18, Jesus states his mission. One of the things of his mission is this. I've come to set the captives free. A quote from Isaiah. And we tend to think today, and often in evangelical churches, we tend to think of that as purely in, in uh, legal terms, in judicial terms, like in a courtroom. That salvation is like Jesus has come to get us out of jail free. It's like a get out of jail, jail free card, because Jesus has done it for us on the cross and through his resurrection. And yes, that is true. That is true. That is what Jesus said. But it's not the whole truth. Didn't, Jesus didn't just die to get us off the hook. 
Jesus came to resurrect the very person that he called us to be and to, to see his whole creation done. To see that the very image that was distorted in us, that he created, all of us created in the image, restored, resurrected, renewed. Well, many of us will be captives to many things in our lives. Imperfections, insecurities, there'll be guilt and shame of stuff you've done in your life that you're still not free from. One of the things is a, a pastor uh, or as vicar, even though I haven't been that, that long, is it's extraordinary the things people hold on to for decades. Um, to do with sin and shame as things have been done. And they don't find that place of freedom. That actually that's why Jesus came. To bring freedom. He comes to set us free. Free indeed. And that's one of the good news we have this morning that Jesus' death and his resurrection was come to bring us life in all its forms and freedom. And salvation becomes a fresh beginning, a new start with God. When we give our lives to Christ, when we put our trust in Jesus, God begins to work in a wonderful way. And yes, there are struggles, yes, there are difficulties, yes, that includes it all. But he goes to work in two ways that we need to always hold on to. One of which is it's the same for every single one of us. God's desire is to transform each one of us into his own likeness. He longs to see our character transformed to be more like Jesus, to be more full of peace, more full of patience, more full of kindness, more full of love, more full of joy, more full of faithfulness, more full of self-control. Each one of us who sat here today, God longs by his spirit to see that be, to come to pass in each one of our lives. That's one of the marks of God at work in our lives. But he also, at the same time, wants to do something very unique in our lives that he specifically created each one of us to be, that he's very specific to each one of us. He made each one of us unique. He wants us to find our calling, our purpose, our, our destiny, the things that he's called us to be and the things he's called us to do. And it's both those things that God longs to do in our lives. He sets us free from what we're not so we can become who he created us to be. You may recall from, uh, I'm not much of a scientist, but you may recall from your biology class that we have 46 chromosomes, 23 from your father, 23 from your mother, and the, the chances that you would be who you are today, uh, excuse my Americanization, but those who are Americanized, you're basically one in 10, 100 trillion that you would be who you are. God called us and made us to be incalculably unique. And as David stood in front of this challenge in front of him, he was offered Saul's armour. And he had a choice to make. David had a choice to make on this day. Was he going to choose to be David or was he going to choose to be someone else's image of who he ought to be? And David made the choice, and it says this in 1 Samuel 17, verses 38 and 39. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tied walking around, and tried walking around because he was not used to them. 
In David's day, the, your armor was a sign of your strength and your ability as a, as, a, as a warrior. It was a sign also of being a king. But David said, I can't use these. I can't put on this armor. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. David could have gone out to meet Goliath wearing somebody else's armor, but he chose to stand and to use what God had made him to be. God had made him as a shepherd. He knew how to use a sling. He knew how to use the stones. And he was deadly with a slingshot. David was at a crossroads. And he made a choice. A choice to be who God had called him to be. And there comes a point in all our lives where we need to take the courage to stop living for other people's expectations. This isn't about being selfish, but it is about saying that we need to live in terms of pleasing God rather than trying to please everybody else around us and to live who he's called us to be. Just to finish, um, in America there's a, a famous tradition of carving um, different parts of the mountain into uh, to memorials of people. And many of you all know Mount Rushmore, which is the American presidents that are commemorated there. But in South Dakota, this is the Crazy Horse Memorial. And it's a mountain carving of one of the most famous leaders, um, Indian chief leaders. And it was commissioned in 1948 and undertaken by a man called Korjak Zukovsky. And it's 563 feet high. Now, if you look on the far left, uh, of the top picture, that white bit is what it's going to be. On the, the top picture is the state of it as it stands. And at the bottom, you'll see how big that face is in relation to people. It's absolutely ginormous statue. Zukovsky died in 1982, but his family has decided to carry on the vision of seeing that built. His father and the children then took it. It's due to be completed in 2050. What would cause someone to do that? Why would someone do that? Why spend a lifetime carving a larger-than-life statue? In the words of Zukoski, he said this, when your life is over, the world will ask you one question. Did you do what you were supposed to do? Some people are called to compose music. Some are called to be accountants. Some are called to parent. Some are called to care for people. Some are called to start businesses. Some are called to practicing, be doctors and lawyers and teachers and carers and all sorts of different things. Why do we do that? To give expression to the fact that God created each one of us uniquely and we're called to live like that. At the end of the day, as we come to share communion together, God isn't going to ask us at the end of our life, why weren't you more like Billy Graham? Or why weren't you more like Mother Teresa? Or why weren't you more like whoever it is your hero of faith might be that you have in your life, you think, that's the person I would like to be like. God is going to ask you, why weren't you more like you? The person I made you to be and created you to be. Amen.